Conscience The idea of conscience is a very familiar one in Western civilization, so much so that we are inclined to forget that it is a biblical concept and not, as we know it, an idea common to men in general. For the Greeks and Romans, conscience and consciousness meant essentially the same thing, a joint knowledge held in common with other men of one's culture because of one's intellectual awareness. It was a development of Christian culture that distinguished consciousness as an intellectual psychological fact and conscience as a moral or ethical fact. For Plato, the distinction was between rational and irrational conduct, and conscience or consciousness was essentially reason. As Hislop pointed out, it was the general character of Christianity that gave rise to the new conception of conscience, and this was because it created a new morality. The Greek never got away from the secular view of things. Whatever his talk about the divine, he associated it with the aesthetic and political view of the world. His ethical interests were confined to the present life and its joys. After scripture, the church fathers saw the moral function of conscience, and they saw it as an aspect of man's psychology. This is not to say that paganism lacked remorse over sin or failed to feel guilty. The Assyrians and Babylonians had a sense of sin, but too commonly they saw the failings of a religious man as due to causes over which he had no control. The effects of the actions of evil spirits or the ritual uncleanness brought about by acts of forgetfulness or by the effects of illness. Thus, conscience for them tended to be dissociated from a strictly personal sense of responsibility, and this was a deadly failing in their moral ideas and character. Egyptian thought arranged the operations of the moral conscience in separate and independent categories, whereas we make them a unity. They lacked any one word for conscience. Their concept of conscience was social and natural, not religious in a supernatural sense. The Egyptian idea, then, ends in something very analogous to the statement of Chinese wisdom, that the natural order of the world is bound up with its political, social, and moral order, and is even quite identical with it. Only, in spite of passages of certain texts, the Egyptians do not seem to have been able to formulate this view with the same theoretical clearness. Because of humanism's political orientation, it has always tended, apart from a Christian influence, to identify morality with legality. As the power and calibre of the state declined, in Greece and Rome, conscience was divorced from the state and attached to reason, a divine reason imminent in man. Since Mohammedanism is essentially in origin a political religion, the statist orientation of conscience in Islam has been pronounced. St. Paul in Romans 2, 28 and 29 declared, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. On the other hand, Muhammad declared, he is a Muslim who is one outwardly, i.e. one who pronounces certain formulae, practices certain rites, and obeys Islam, the statist social order. Despite certain later developments in Islam, the basic emphasis was on formalism and externals. In biblical faith, conscience is grounded upon the fact that man is God's creature and is in all things and at all times responsible to God. Because man is created in God's image, man is inescapably geared to God's law, for which he was created, and cannot transgress it without knowing and feeling it. The reaction of Adam and Eve on sinning was to hide themselves guiltily from God. Man can no more escape conscience than he can escape the fact that God created him, 
His conscience can be dulled as he moves into sin and death, but it cannot be silenced or destroyed. Conscience is thus an internal enemy to man in his sin. As Hamlet observed, Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Examples of such a reaction to conscience are many. In my student days, one student, later a cynical professor of philosophy, dropped out of a course on the Russian novel because his reading of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment had so drastic an effect on him. His own intellectual position was so much like that of Raskolnikov that when Raskolnikov committed murder, the student reacted with such guilt that, rounding a corner and seeing a police officer, he ducked back and hid. Then, furious with himself for reacting so, he denounced Dostoevsky's book angrily to me and dropped the book and the course. St. Paul repeatedly makes note of the centrality of a good conscience to a free and godly life. Thus, in writing to Timothy, St. Paul declared, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and a faith unfeigned. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. 1 Timothy 1, five and 19. For the redeemed man, the law has as its purpose charity out of a pure heart, a good conscience grounded on obedience to God's law, and an unfeigned faith, unfeigned because it moves in obedience to God. Thus, a good conscience is joined with soundness of faith, obedience to law and charity, and a bad conscience with an unsound or bad faith, disobedience to God's law, and an uncharitable heart. Paul further declares, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience is defiled. They make confession that they know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Titus 1.15.16, AVR. As Chrysostom observed, in commenting on the fact that while pork was forbidden meat, it is not therefore in itself unclean, In short, if we wish to be very nice, everything is unclean. Otherwise, if we please not to be nice, nothing is unclean. Yet all things are pure. God made nothing unclean, for nothing is unclean except sin only. For that reaches to the soul and defiles it. Other uncleanness is human prejudice. This, then, is uncleanness. They are themselves unclean. So it is here, when the soul is unclean, it thinks all things unclean. Therefore, scrupulous observances are no mark of purity, but it is the part of purity to be bold in all things. For he that is pure by nature ventures upon all things, they that are defiled upon nothing. This we may say against Marcion. Seest thou that it is a mark of purity to be superior to all defilement? To touch nothing implies impurity. This holds even with respect to God. That he assumed flesh is a proof of purity. If through fear he had not taken it, there would have been defilement moral. What then is unclean? Sin, malice, covetousness, wickedness. For Chrysostom, Scripture definitely ruled out any dualistic condemnation of or abhorrence for the material. As God's creation, it is pure and good. The pure in heart, the redeemed of God, know that all things, in terms of their God-ordained purpose, are good and pure. Evil comes from man's heart, not from things. To the impure, all things are impure, in that all things are misused and made an instrument of sin. Their conscience and mind is defiled or polluted, so that they seek to vindicate their false religiosity. 
their ascription of evil to things rather than to themselves, with an evil or polluted conscience. Thus, while conscience gives no rest to the ungodly, such conscience lacks the clarity and purity of a godly conscience. Our conscience is purified from such dead works by the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot or fault to God. Hebrews 9.14 We then serve God with a sensitive conscience, which responds to, rather than resists, his law word. Christ's atonement cleanses from our hearts an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 An evil conscience is one seared with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4.2 i.e. one so branded with sin that the conscience has been cauterized so that it has lost all sensitiveness and fails to respond. The phrase can be translated, branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron. The image is drawn from the practice of branding slaves and certain criminals on their forehead with a mark. Spence commented further, These men tried to teach the efficacy of a substitution of certain counsels of perfection in place of a faithful loving life. They based their teaching on wild oriental speculations about the evil nature of all matter. Such speculations were as much Greek as Oriental, RJR. They were often themselves evil livers, who, conscious of their own stained, scarred lives, strove with a show of outward sanctity and hypocritical self-denial to beguile and to lead astray others, and in the end, to make them as vile as themselves. 3. Forbidding to marry. This strange and unnatural counsel of perfection, St. Paul, thinking and writing in the Spirit, looked forward to as a perilous delusion, which would, as time went on, grow into the impious dogma of certain of the great Gnostic schools. This teaching was probably, even in those early days, creeping into the churches. The Jewish sects of Essenes and Therapeutae had already taught that abstinence from marriage was meritorious. Men belonging to these sects doubtless were to be found in every populous center where Jews congregated, and it was always in these centers of Judaism that Christianity had first found a home. St. Paul, however, saw no reason to dwell on this point at any length. The gross absurdity of such a counsel as a rule for life was too apparent. It was a plain contradiction of the order of divine providence. But the next question, which presented itself in the teaching of these false ascetics, as we shall see, required more careful handling. And commanding to abstain from meats. Once more, we must look to those famous Jewish religious communities of Egypt, the Essenes and the Therapeutae, the precursors of the great monastic systems of Christianity as the home whence these perverted ascetic tendencies issued. These precepts too, like the council respecting marriage, were adopted in after years by several of the principal Gnostic sects, and it was especially those times St. Paul looked on to, although no doubt the seeds of their false asceticism had already been sown broadcast in the principal Christian congregations. It is important to note that, when St. Paul speaks here and elsewhere of an evil conscience, he associates it also with a religious conscience, although an ungodly one. Man's conscience is geared to God, it requires justification, and if it will not find it in Christ, then it will seek it elsewhere. An evil conscience thus holds down the truth of God in unrighteousness, i.e. it suppresses God's witness within it, Romans 1.18, in order to supplant that witness with its own self-justifying practices. The religious justifications it seeks only reveal more clearly the mark of the slave or criminal conscience. In the modern era, conscience was again made a faculty of reason, and in part a product of reason. Subsequently, with the rise of sociology and anthropology, conscience became increasingly a social and emotional product. Thus, according to A.J. Baum, conscience is 
any emotionally toned experience in which a tendency to act is inhibited by a recognition socially conditioned that suffering evil consequences is likely to result from acting on the impulse to act. Freudianism, with its doctrine of the superego, reinforced such ideas. The social framework of conscience theory had very early strengthened the statism of the modern era by tying conscience to legality. The Freudian emphasis cut this tie by making feeling more important than reason. Hegel's mind was incarnating itself in the state, and as a result, conscience was tied to the state by the Hegelians and Marxists. Marxist theory refuses to recognize any right of conscience in independence of the Marxist state, because the dictatorship of the proletariat is reason, and therefore conscience incarnate. In Marxist areas, therefore, the voice of the dictatorship cannot be dissented with, for dissent is by definition treason and sin. Just as the medieval inquisitors sought to secure the condemned heretic's confession of sin and heresy before his execution for the good of his soul, so the state prosecutors of Marxist nations demand public confessions of sin from condemned traitors to the incarnation of reason and conscience, the communist state. In the Western democracies, conscience has been tied to feeling by the non-Marxist humanists. The essence of a good conscience is to be sinless and to do what one feels, to do your own thing without any restraint of religious law or inhibition. True religion is attained by this sincere surrender to impulse and feeling. Religion is seen as an existentialist reading of Eastern religions. A psychiatrist, in defending the character of his existentialist youth, has said, It is hardly surprising that youth looks eastward for salvation. Faced with the world as it is, and the evident impotence of their elders to solve its manifold problems, they find that a religion which teaches detachment from the world has its evident attractions. It is better to love physically than not to love at all, and orgasm may become one step on the path towards mystical union with the divine in a way which is totally alien to Pauline asceticism. The smoking of pot has become a ritual uniting the young on both sides of the Atlantic. Apart from the absurdity of talking about a religion of detachment from the world, which calls for uninhibited and amoral sexuality, Storr's position is absurd also in speaking of mystical union with the divine, in a faith which has no divinity, but rather an ultimate nothingness. More important, Storr puts his finger on a central pulse in the new conscience, orgasm as a step on the path towards mystical union with the divine. When sex is burdened with this kind of expectation, it cannot fail to do other than disillusion man, and to fail him. Man's answer, then, is to seek even heightened sexuality as the key to this mystical experience. The literature of modern writers is full of this expectation of cosmic coition, a great earth-shaking, after Hemingway, experience. When normal sexuality fails, the answer is sought in perversions. At this point, Germaine Greer is right in ridiculing the mystical nonsense which modern male writers have ascribed to the orgasm. The women's liberation movement is in part an immoral revolt against this overvaluation of sex, but the result of women's acceptance of an independent role is usually either cynicism or pessimism. Thus, one English girl from a prominent family, a nude model and staff member of a men's magazine, has said, I am permissive, if that means acting instinctively, without reference to my establishment training. It's inevitable that we behave in this way these days because we haven't got a future, and that makes us insecure. Our generation can no longer have children because we want to. We've got to weigh up the odds of survival. She does not believe that the alternative society is a constructive solution. My life is absolutely non-constructive, but personal relationships are much more important to young people than plodding away in a little job. 
that is the one redeeming feature of our generation. Conscience tied to feeling leads people down the road of self-delusion and into a burning out in frenetic experiences. A godly conscience, informed by the word of God, leads men into a productive life and into a freedom before God. Conscience, having its origin in God's creative act, can only thrive under God and his law.